Hello, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be, whoever you may be across the nation, around the world. I am your host, Dane, and this is Spectral Skull Session. An exciting show today. We are discussing the mysteries of Panama, and I'll be discussing the four biggest mysteries that I know of pertaining to the nation of Panama. So stay tuned, everyone. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Do you ever have this problem? You're getting ready for a long walk in the woods and you want to roll a spliff of smokable herb. You've got your herb in the bathroom, you're rooting around in your toiletries kit for medical scissors so you can chop it up nice and fine. But then you have to go get a plate from the kitchen. When you're all done, it's a mess. You've got herbs all over the bathroom. Your hands smell like herb. You've got to wash all this stuff and put it back. It takes forever to get out the door. You're not vibing. you got to light that spliff up before you can feel at peace. Ugh. Luckily, Happy Trees has the solution. A premium-grade stash box from Happy Trees. That's happytreesupplies.com. Happy Trees sells a convenient lockable stash box. It comes with a four-piece titanium grinder that will give you the smooth grind you've been looking for. The 50 diamond cut teeth grinds your herb to the perfect size for cones and rolls. The neodymium magnets keep the lid on tight while you grind. There's also a stash jar, which will protect your herb from damaging UV rays and keep moisture in so your stash stays fresh. The airtight seal helps keep smells inside so you can save them for yourself. There's also a metal rolling tray so you can save every precious bud. And everything fits snugly into the box. Plus it has a key so your nosy roommate or your little brother isn't poking around in your stash. They come in three varieties. There's the Metatron's Cube themed box that has Metatron's Cube etched on the box and every accessory. Metatron's Cube is a sacred image associated with the angel who translates the directives of God into a form comprehensible to humans. This is according to the Kabbalah. There's also a Desert Visions-themed box. It has colorful desert scenes painted onto the accessories. And for those of you who prefer plain, there's a box made of bamboo that is just adorable. I have my own Happy Tree stash box. Yes, I use it to hold my stash. I absolutely love it. These boxes range from $38.90 to $28.90 on the website happytreesupplies.com, but now Happy Trees is offering a special deal to anyone who listens to this show. Use the coupon code SPECTRAL20 for a 20% discount. What are you waiting for? Skip the mess, get organized, and preserve your stash from degrading ultraviolet light and snoopy little thieves who try to make off with your herb. 
check out happytreesupplies.com. That's happytreesupplies.com. Welcome back, everyone. I am recording today from the tropical isthmus nation of Panama. I am actually in Phuket, Panama right now. That's Phuket. It's a mountainous city in the north of the country. I've been here since last week, and um, I'm not fully prepared to talk about why I'm here. I'm not here for the show directly, but I am here for reasons that will affect the show and what we do on the Spectral Skull session. If you bear with me, I will get around to telling you what's going on, uh, where I am, where I'm going to stay, and uh, what I'll be doing down here. It may be a few weeks, if not months away. In the meantime, I ask you bear with me. Uh, the sound studio for tonight is highly improvised. I borrowed a spare bedroom from a friend. So I was able to uh, borrow a spare bedroom and it's pretty echoey in here. I get surrounded by pillows, doing everything I can to cut down on the echo, but um, there's gonna be some echo. And you might wanna listen with your uh, headphones off and your speaker on today. So because I'm down in Panama, I wanted to do an episode about how mysterious this place is. Because when I came down here, initially I thought Panama was one of the more boring countries on our planet. And since I have been here, I've discovered that is totally wrong. Panama is an extremely mysterious, almost enigmatic place. So here are the four biggest mysteries that I know of we'll be discussing tonight. One, the origins of Panama and the mystery of whether Teddy Roosevelt is personally responsible for it being a country that will be Theodore Roosevelt to many of you. He was the president of the United States, early 20th century. Two, the Panama Papers and Vladimir Putin's role in Panama. Three, the case of the disappearing Dutch girls. And then four, the strange petroglyphs of the Panamanian jungles. So this will be a bit of a roundup episode. I'm not going to go into depth on any particular topic but just sort of survey these four mysteries. There are three reasons for this. First one, I'm traveling. I found it hard to do research. I'm actually working on an extraterrestrial and UFO arc. I've been rereading Diana Polsek's, excuse me, Diana Pasolka's book, American Cosmic. And I've also been reading about the life of chemist and rocket scientist Jack Parsons. And I'm getting ready to read a new book that just came out arguing that the human race was engineered by extraterrestrials. I've got a lot of material about UFOs, aliens, and their role in the US space program, but it's really hard to focus when you're traveling, I found. So I was able to write this episode because the place where I'm staying at has a nice balcony along the river. I just went outside yesterday afternoon switched off the Facebook and the Twitter, turned off my phone, and just pounded it out. Two, uh, some of these topics are mysterious, but a little tangential to the main theme of this show, which is the exploration of the supernatural, occult, and esoteric phenomena. The origins of Panama and the Panama Papers are very mysterious and occult for sure but they're much more in the realm of spy and espionage theme 
and much less aliens, ghosts, cryptids. So why cover them at all? That leads me to my third reason for doing this show. I wanted to honor Panama. Before I found out I was headed down here, I did not know much about the country. As I said, I knew the Panama Canal was here. I sort of assumed it was a hot, muggy, jungle-filled backwater. But in reality, there's a lot going on down here that I think is interesting and that the audience will appreciate. And really, this leads me to possibly a fourth reason, something I've been noticing for the past five to ten reasons, excuse me, five to ten years. If you're from the United States, we get very little news about our southern neighbors. I think it was just about five years ago I realized that the death toll from the narco war in Mexico is comparable to the death toll in Syria. Now, Mexico is a lot lower, but the dead and missing are still in the tens of thousands in Mexico. It's hard to know for sure because so many people just vanish, but despite the high amounts of violence, we know almost nothing about Mexican politics in the U.S. I don't know why we Americans don't follow the news in what they call Latin America. I find it very strange considering how much trade America does with this part of the world, how important it is for us. Honestly, I think there's a conspiratorial dimension to it. I think sometimes there's a kind of enforced insularity pushed by the people who control the media. For one thing, I think they don't want us to be fully cognizant of how much chaos takes place on our southern border. It's really scary when you think about how the Mexican government has been frequently outgunned, infiltrated, and overrun by the cartels. All that chaos and instability, which is linked to the American demand for drugs like cocaine and opioids, it's terrifying and also chastening. Our own policies play a role in what's happening throughout Latin America. I also wonder if maybe they don't want us Americans to think of ourselves as sharing a continent with a vibrant and active part of the world where people are in many ways very relatable, they're very much Americans, but they do have different priorities from us United States citizens. Uh, in Costa Rica, there's incredible respect for nature. In Panama, you can see that people are much more connected to their families, to their traditions, including but not limited to religion. Both Costa Rica and Panama, it should be noted, do not have any standing military at all. Maybe if we Americans were more engaged with our Southern neighbors, we would rethink some of our own materialism, some of our consumerism, and the people selling us a made-to-order lifestyle definitely don't want us to do that. Who is gatekeeping us from knowing more about this part of the world that is so important to us Americans? What is their motivation? To keep us complacent about threats to our national security? keep us from taking responsibility for our own role in destabilizing our neighbors, to keep us from thinking about an alternative way of living, and keep us from recognizing how important religious belief and alternative values are to people nearby us who are very similar to us. Well, you might have your own ideas about what's going on. These are just ideas. These are just thoughts that I had, you know, fresh off the boat in Panama. So pay attention if you can to what's going on in Latin America. See what you come up with. If you have any ideas about why we are being kept in the dark about this part of the world, please write the show and let me know. So let's begin with covering the mysterious origins of Panama. 
Uh, first of all, Panama is located on the Isthmus of Panama. It is basically the thinnest part of the landmass connecting the North and South American continent. If you imagine an S, and then you rotate the S on its side, so 80 degrees horizontally, not totally horizontal, but about 80 degrees to the left, you've got Panama. So the west side of Panama, that'll be the, the top of that S, it'll be slightly higher, so a little further north than the east side. Uh, north of Panama, higher up on the isthmus, is Costa Rica. South of Panama is Colombia. Panama split off from Spain in 1821, but it was part of the Republic of Gran Colombia. This was a super state that was made up of what today is Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela. Eventually, Panama and Colombia became their own state, separating from Ecuador and Venezuela. And then Colombia and Panama split in 1903. And that's the mystery. You see, the United States was in negotiations with Colombia for permission to dig the Panama Canal. Colombia was asking for a pretty high price from America. And suddenly, Panama declared independence from Colombia. The U.S. recognized Panama as an independent state overnight. And boom, the U.S. resumed negotiating the Panama Canal, this time for a much lower price. So it's quite possible that Panama can be thought of as a kind of client state for the United States. A client state as in, it seems the U.S. created Panama to serve U.S. interests. No judgment there. The world is a dog-eat-dog place. We have no doubts. I just want my countrymen to be cognizant of what our nation had to do in order to secure its role in the world. You could wake up one day and find out that your backyard is being overrun by communists. So we got to stay alert. But what is the evidence that the U.S. actually created Panama? This is the mystery that requires some history. So the U.S. had a treaty with the superstate of Colombia slash Panama that they could land troops on the Isthmus to kill off pirates back in 1846. This is because the lines of communication, first they were mule lines, so they would send messages by mule from Bogota, Colombia, to Mexico City. Those mules were easily intercepted by pirates and brigands. And um, so this isthmus being quite narrow at this point, Panama is the place where it is the narrowest, it was a kind of vulnerable choke point. So Colombia was happy to give the United States legal permission to just sort of land troops willy-nilly and raid the isthmus in order to kill off pirates and brigands. And by 1855, the U.S. had helped build a rail line through the isthmus. And whenever locals opposed the expansion of the railway or various activities associated with it, the U.S. would just land troops and beat them off. Meanwhile, certain people in Panama, business interests, got quite rich by doing deals with the American government, deals connected to the railroad. And so a community of wealthy, pro-U.S. Panamanians had come into existence around the new transportation infrastructure and the American commitment to defending that infrastructure. These powerful Panamanians were in favor of the Panama Canal, and they were positioned to take extraordinary advantage of it. Now, the idea of building a canal to connect the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans had been important to the U.S. for decades through the mid-18th century, but there had been a lot of controversy about how to do it. Many people wanted it to go through Nicaragua, not Panama. You see, Panama was full of mosquitoes at the time, 
and the malaria actually would kill people off when they tried to dig the canal. And the French tried to dig a canal on their own through Panama, but they failed. Like I said, their workers died. Their company went bankrupt. So when the Panama Canal deal finally started to go through, powerful Panamanians were heavily invested in it, and they had been working, lobbying the U.S. government behind the scenes for quite a while to make sure that this canal got dug in Panama and that they would be able to make money off of it. They absolutely panicked when they found out that the central government located in Bogota, remember this is the Panamanian Colombian superstate, that central government wanted a significant sum in payment for the rights to the canal to go to the Americans. And many politicians located down in Colombia and Bogota were vehemently against U.S. involvement at all. After all, the canal project was going to lead to the U.S. having sovereignty over a significant swath of the superstate Panama, Colombia. Nationalists tend not to like foreigners taking control of their country. Uh, we know that around this time, Manuel Amador Guerrero, who would later become the first president of Panama, began working with the U.S. government on plans to secede from Colombia. Now, what we don't know for sure is the degree to which he was in contact with the Roosevelt administration. We know that pro-Panamanian interests had planted a story about civil unrest in the New York world. This was the predecessor to the New York Times in 1902, one year before the secession took place. We also know that a French engineer associated with the Canal Project met with President Roosevelt in 1902. And Roosevelt did write later that he thought there was a kind of implicit understanding that if Panama was able to break away from Bogota, the Americans would recognize it and help secure the Canal Zone. This is exactly what happened. The Panamanian businessmen drew up a flag. They basically, somebody's uh, daughter just kind of um, sewed some flags onto their coats. And they also drew up some documents. They declared themselves to be liberated. A Colombian warship parked outside of Panama City found out about this and shelled the city. The story goes that the Colombians lobbed five shells and then retreated. Those five shells killed a donkey and a Chinese man named Wong Kong Yi. He was the only casualty of the Panamanian secession. Shortly thereafter, the U.S. Nashville arrived in port, secured the city, and the Panamanian Revolution was over. The United States declared Panama to be a sovereign state. The mystery here is exactly what Roosevelt's involvement was. Did he simply signal to the Panamanians that they were sympathetic to the project, or was this a kind of uh, early version of a CIA coup? Was this a plotted uh, overthrow of a portion of Colombia. After all, America was eager to take advantage of the discounted price of the canal. So the answer can almost certainly be found in the story of how the canal rights were ultimately negotiated. John Hayes was Roosevelt's Secretary of State. He came into Panama shortly after the revolution to negotiate a treaty for rights to the canal. His Panamanian counterpart in the negotiation actually presented him with two legal treaties, so two different drafts of the Canal Treaty, and said that the United States could have whichever version they wanted. And then it turned out that the Panamanian representative had no signet ring with which to seal his signature. So at the time when you signed a treaty between two countries, 
the representative would not only sign, he would then stamp his signature with a ring to indicate, you know, this is really my signature. This is my family seal or, you know, some seal that I have that's connected with me in some way that's difficult for other people to forge. When it turned out he didn't happen to have a ring on him, John Hayes suggested that the Panamanian representative just use his family crest. So he had a crest ring that John Hayes used for family stuff, as well as John Hayes having um, a U.S., official U.S. signet ring. And the Panamanian representative said, sure. So he just took John Hayes' family ring and he signed a treaty giving away sovereignty for part of the newly created nation of Panama to the United States, sealing that signature with the family crest of the Secretary of State of the U.S. Oh, and here's one last thing. The man who was legally bestowed with the authority to negotiate this treaty, the man who signed this deal, he wasn't even Panamanian or Colombian himself. He was a French engineer, one of the French engineers who had been planning the secession of Panama for quite some time, and he had personally met with Roosevelt. So the Republic of Panama handed the authority to negotiate sovereignty over their future canal to a man who was not himself Panamanian, a man who had plotted Panamanian secession. So that suggests to me the Panamanians knew they were paying back a very, very big favor. So that's one mystery of Panama, how it got created. Sounds like that one is pretty much solved, although we'll never know for sure exactly what Roosevelt said to the Panamanians. The next mystery took place in the 21st century. The Panama Papers are 20, sorry, 2.6 terabytes of data contained in some 11.5 million documents that revealed the existence of a global network of wealthy elites who were using Panama to illegally conceal their assets through the use of shell corporations. And some of these wealthy elites were connected to rogue governments that are under sanction by the U.S. and Europe. For example, Russian President Vladimir Putin was found to have a close friend, a mere professional musician, who owned $2 billion worth of assets. The Panama Papers were leaked anonymously to a German newspaper in 2016. An anonymous whistleblower warned the journalists that he feared for his life. As a result of his brave actions, the law firm of Mossack Finesca was shut down. Lawyers Mossack and Finesca spent four months in jail. The revelations of hidden offshore accounts led to resignations of politicians around the world, from Iceland to Mongolia, Spain, just to name a few places. And as recently as October 2020, the government of Germany was seeking to extradite the lawyers who ran Mossack and Finesca. Now, almost everything I know about shell companies comes from the John le Carré novel, The Night Manager, which is an excellent novel, but I admit that it is um, spy fiction. I did do a little reading on the BBC website, so here it goes. The idea behind a shell company is pretty simple. If you have a bunch of money and you don't want to pay taxes on it, you find some corrupt lawyers in a country that has low taxes, say Panama. Not because Panama is corrupt, it's the lawyers who are corrupt. Now, these crooked lawyers of yours set up a new company, and they register the company in the name of someone who is not you. It could be a friend. It could be a romantic partner. It could be the crooked lawyers themselves. 
Then you have to move your money somehow without anyone knowing into the new company. If you can get the money into the new company without anyone tracing it, say you just put the money in a suitcase and you fly it you know, down to Panama, um, then the money cannot be taxed. And if people come after you, say you have an ex-wife or even an ex-husband who wants divorce money, they can't find it. It's in someone else's name. It's parked in a company in another country. There's no way for anyone to legally extract that wealth from you, be they a government or a litigious person. Uh, as I see it, there are a couple weaknesses with this whole process. One is you need to trust the people who own your shell companies. I don't understand how you could ever trust a crooked lawyer. That makes zero sense to me. He's already a crook. Now you're going to trust him with something that's illegal. Won't he just throw you under the bus at the first opportunity? Of course he will. Two, the laundering of the money into the shell company seems to be a weak spot. You either need a crooked bank or you need a very good cover story. A big part of why it's basically impossible for you or I is this. Say I, Dane, walk into a bank in Panama and say, hey, I want to open an account. Well, they're going to demand to know who am I? Who is this Dane guy? They're going to want to see all kinds of records on me. This is called know your customer, and it's a fundamental practice in banking and payment processing. Now, if I start funneling money into that business account I have in Panama, I don't have one, this is hypothetical, they're going to demand to know where it's coming from. The bank will say, well, where did you get all this cash, man? All this would make it impossible for someone like me to launder money. As I understand it, though, the wealthier you are and the more established you are, the easier it is to cook up cover stories and the easier it is to get bankers to cut you some slack. So a bank in Panama isn't going to put up with any shady dealings from a guy like me who's waving around like 500 bucks in cash. It's not worth it. But if you're some wealthy scion waving five or 50 million in cash, the bank may say, well, you know, we don't really know where this money's coming from. We don't really understand the details, but this is gonna be good for us. Once we have your five to $50 million, we're gonna be loaning it out and we're gonna be making five to 15% interest. So uh, we, might, we might just look the other way. And so that's a little primer on how the wealthy are laundering money around the world to avoid taxes. And I'm not trying to pick on wealthy people here, obviously. If a person has a lot of wealth because they're running an awesome business and they're doing good things, maybe they're making spaceships and electric cars. I won't name names. You can imagine a guy who fits this description, I hope. Um, if you're that guy, that's awesome that you're the wealthiest person in the world. All power to you. But if you're... Uh, a politician's son who's getting handed sinecures, easy jobs that pay a lot, from corrupt as heck countries like, I don't know, Ukraine, China, you know, in the hopes that, that your politician dad will sell out his homeland's foreign policy. I'm not going to name any names here either because you know Twitter, Facebook, and other social media services will censor us. But you can imagine who I'm talking about. Anyway, that kind of thing, that's, that's what upsets me. That's what's wrong. Outrageous, and I am against it. So the Panama Papers were a bit of a catastrophe because turned out that all these corrupt politicians and shady business dealers around the world thought they could trust these crooked lawyers, 
somebody, probably some paralegal working in the offices, you know, just had a conscience and turned them in. Basically just turned over two tetrabytes of information to German newspapers. And then there was a crowdsourced project to process all that info. And people all over the world have lost their jobs and gone to prison. One of the questions, I suppose, the mystery here, why did all these corrupt politicians and shady business guys from all around the world use a law firm here in Panama? Why Panama? I don't know, except it seems that the taxes are low here. That seems to be a big part of it. But I do want to mention to you, dear listeners, we talk about conspiracies sometimes on this show. You know, the shady origins of Panama and the Panama Papers, these are bona fide conspiracies. This stuff really happened. There is no doubt. So I think we should just accept that conspiracies really are a part of world history. They are a central feature of the landscape of human society. Anyone who tells you otherwise is probably a CIA frontman. The challenge is to disentangle real conspiracies from fake ones. And that will be an ongoing thread in this show. As we talked about in our episode on Robert Anton Wilson, it's very hard to know what is real, what is paranoia, what is disinformation, what is misinformation, and what is being put into your head by demons. And I think that trying to navigate the reality of uncertainty is of central epistemic importance to us as seekers of occult hidden knowledge. Moving on, I would like to touch briefly on one of the saddest and darkest mysteries coming out of Panama in recent years, the disappearance of two young Dutch women in 2014. Uh, Chris Kramers and Lisan Froon were hiking in Bouquet. That's where I am right now. Uh, Bouquet is a mountain town. There's a volcano nearby. It's rugged and wild outside the town. Inside the town, it's a bit of an American expat bubble. And I'm only here for a couple more days. Um, apparently, these Dutch ladies were teaching English to some children, and they were staying at the home of the parents of the children. They were trading their language skills to the kids, and the family was giving them a place to stay for the summer. It's a pretty good deal. If any of you out there can get it, I would recommend that you consider living in a foreign country and trading your English skills or whatever other skills you have to the locals in exchange for the opportunity to live among them. So these young ladies posted that they were going to hike around Bouquet on Facebook. They were seen having brunch with some Dutch gentlemen on March 29th. And they took a local friend's dog with them on this hike. Later that night, the dog showed up at the owner's home, but without the girls. That was the first clue that something had gone terribly wrong. On April 2nd, the girls missed an appointment with a local guide. On April 3rd, the authorities mobilized, engaging aerial searches and ground searches of the forest and local mountains. On April 6th, the parents of the young ladies arrived in Panama, along with police, dog units, and detectives from the Netherlands to conduct a full-scale search of the forest, which lasted 10 days. The parents also offered $30,000 in reward money for any information about their missing daughters. Ten weeks later, a local woman turned in Froon's blue backpack, which she said she had found in a rice paddy by a riverbank near her village of Alto Romero in the Bocas del Toro region. 
She said it was sh- she was sure it had not been there the day before. The backpack contained two pairs of sunglasses, $83 in cash, Froon's passport, a water bottle, Froon's camera, and the women's phones, all packed dry and in good condition. So from the cell phones, the tech forensic experts were able to gather all kinds of data. Apparently, the ladies had made emergency calls over the course of three days, and one phone had been switched on and then off again as late as April 5th, another one on April 8th. And April 5th is six days into their disappearance, and April 8th would have been nine days into their disappearance. None of their emergency calls had gone through because they had been out of range. I can attest that this is a problem in Panama. I lost cell service and I was downtown Boquette today. Uh, One of the most mysterious things about the cell phones was that on April 8th, one of the phones had been switched on and had been used to take 90 photos. Apparently they were flash photos taken in the dark. Two months later, the ladies' bones were discovered in the mountains, some miles away from Bouquet. There was no definitive evidence of foul play, but there was evidence of trauma, which may have been from a fall or may have been due to animals eating the bodies. So the ladies were most definitely dead, sadly. If you want more details about this, many, many unsolved mystery-type podcasts and YouTube shows have been covering this story, so I'm not going to go into it too deeply. People are often confused about these weird photos taken on April 8th, and there's also a whole side story about a possible attempted cover-up by the Panamanian authorities. I would like to simply refer those who are interested to uh, a really good and unique YouTube show called Bedtime Stories. They do black and white still drawings with a dramatic voiceover, and they do a good job of dissecting the conspiracy dimension to this story. And there's one really dark possibility that we have to talk about because this is a show about possibilities. It has been suggested that the girls were cannibalized. I did find a news report about a cannibalistic church that was taken down by the Panamanian authorities a few years ago. People I've talked to in the mountains have said that some of the indigenous peoples living there practice some kind of nature or spirit worship that predates the European settlements and the arrival of Christianity. And obviously we all know that Central America does have a deep history of human sacrifice. So it is possible the girls were ritualistically murdered, sacrificed, or eaten. My take on this is actually, it's blindingly obvious what probably happened here. Two people wandered into the jungle the mountainous jungle, they got lost and they died because they couldn't get their phones to work. As for the phone and the photos on April 8th, the 90 flashes in the dark, I think it's possible that one of the ladies was using her phone to try to scare a wild animal away or as a navigational aid, or it's possible that someone found the phone and activated the flash and then lost interest in it and put the phone back. In fact, I think it's very possible that somebody found the backpack. Now, remember, the backpack was found separate from the bodies. So that's often thought of as one of the reasons for thinking foul play was involved. I don't think it's implausible at all to think that some human found the backpack. Maybe a young person found the backpack. 
And at first was thinking, this is cool. I found a free backpack. And then when you start to think it through, well, this belongs to somebody. And maybe you hear that some people went missing and you start to think, well, if somebody finds me with this backpack, I'm in a lot of trouble. And then you just ditch the backpack. You just, well, I'm just going to ditch it somewhere because I don't want to answer any questions about how I found this backpack. I think that's probably what happened. Why is there any controversy about any of this? I think that whenever people disappear, especially when young, uh, I'm going to say it, it's true. When young women disappear, it's always a scandal and it's always people pay a lot of attention to it. Um, I also think that the Panamanian authorities trying to deny that the women were dead or missing for some time was part of it. And yet, it's obvious to me what's going on there. Being here in Bukete, uh, it's an expat enclave. It's full of foreigners from Europe and the USA. They clearly don't want bad press because it could scare the bejesus out of um, fearful Americans and Europeans. You know, though, and that's part of why I feel justified in covering this, even though I think it's kind of a non-story, you shouldn't ever cover anything up, right? When you cover things up and you get caught, you made it a million times worse because there now there's a story. But maybe before there wasn't. Clearly the jungles are dangerous. It's steep. There are dramatic changes in the weather that happen over short periods of time. There are different species of wild animals. People can die even if you have a partner. I've been traveling solo, so I haven't gone on any deep hikes. I did drive down one jungle mountain trail. I did a four-hour drive from Santa Fe to the Caribbean. Santa Fe is another very isolated mountain town. It was a nice, very nice paved asphalt highway, and there were bus stops every few miles, and I passed cars, and I passed people walking along the side of the road pretty much, you know, every few miles. But even I had this creepy feeling like, I'm really isolated. There was a sense in which I was really quite isolated on that road. And this leads me to the final mystery of Panama, I want to end on a positive note. While I was on this jungle mountain trail, I came across one of the most amazing and intriguing ancient artifacts I've ever seen in my life. I was driving on the Alto de la Piedra, connecting the tiny mountain town of Santa Fe to the Caribbean Ocean. Piedra means basically rock, but they use it to mean rock with petroglyphs carved into it down in Panama. I found two possible sites where I, there could be petroglyphs. I was told to check out one spot that was high up in the mountains. When I got to it, I got out of my car. There was this kind of building structure nearby. And when I parked my car, a window slid open and a man waved to me. So I walked around a corner to the building and I realized that it wasn't really a building at all. It was like an empty shell and it had a facade. So it looked like he was inside a little house, actually a significantly sized house, but really it was just a facade with an overhang. So I walked around and I gave the man a dollar to park my car in his lot. And he gave me directions to hike up the mountain and find a piedra. I hiked up the mountain and I came across a family home and some children ran away from me screaming. Then their mom came out to see what was going on. And I asked her about the piedra. She said there were no piedras. So I retraced my steps. I took another path. Now this path took me past some obviously abandoned housing, a big concrete two-story building with no door. The door had been removed. It had wooden slit windows. 
It didn't look occupied because there wasn't anything around the house, like vehicles or evidence of a lot of recent foot traffic. Um, I couldn't see in to the house. I couldn't be sure. And one thing I saw just kind of scared me. There was one thing in front of this house in the patio, a big hat, just lying there at the foot of the door. And I thought, wow, there could be some people hiding out in this weird, isolated, abandoned home waiting for me to walk by. And I was just getting a little spooked. Sometimes when you're alone, you start to imagine things. So um, I yelled out, is anyone home? And then I turned back and kind of walked back to my car. So I just got back in the car and I kept driving. I scratched that off my list of piedras to find. And I felt very lucky when I did find a piedra on the side of the road. And it was marked with a big metal sign, Piedra de la Molière, or Molière. M-O-L-E-R-E. So I parked my car on the side of the road about 100 meters down from the Piedra, and I am just going to run the footage for you. This is uh, the audio of me witnessing this large boulder object on the side of the road. Okay, I found one of the rocks. This one is called Piedra de Moller. Look, you can see the petroglyphs on it. Oh, fuck. Some kind of cross shape. And then there's something here. Can't, I can't really see what it is. Oh, here's something. Whoa. Oh man, that's amazing. Look, it looks like it's a spaceship. There's the uh, bridge of the ship or the, where the captain is. And there's like the engine room and look, there's the, there's the uh, exhaust and the engine energy. Yes, very clearly. Well, or it could be a person. There's the head and the crazy hair. There's her torso and there's her lower part. There's another one of these weird crosses. What is this? Oh, here's a better one. Oh, wow. There's the sun. There's the infinity sign. This thing's amazing. This is an amazing artifact. Prehistory. Right here on the side of the road. You can see the roads right there. <laughs> There's my car you can see it in the distance. <laughs> I wonder if this is a map. Probably to help people figure out how to get across the mountains. It looks kind of looks like a road. So it's very slippery. I'm not going to go any higher, even though I'd like to get some better footage of that. That stuff over there. As I say in that audio, it was just amazing. I had never seen anything like it these inscriptions or these petroglyphs, these hieroglyphics, whatever you want to call them. If you want to check it out, I'm putting the photos up on the website and I'm going to try to put a link to the video. I'm going to put the video on YouTube and then link it to the website. I, as soon as I'm done checking out this Piedra, I'm actually still on top of it. And uh, I look up and there was a man with a machete dressed in indigenous clothing staring at me. He was on the side of the road, 
Now, I had seen people clearing the sides of the road with machetes earlier in the day, but I had been pretty sure there was nobody nearby when I stopped my car to get out to the Piedra. He was just staring at me, blankly. Not blankly, but uh, with a kind of, like, I couldn't read his expression. <laughs> so I scrambled off the Piedra pretty fast, and I made a little prayer motion with my hands. I put my hands together in front of my chest and bowed. And he nodded to me, and then I kind of jogged back to my car. So I hope that this episode has given you something to think about. Panama is a mysterious place from its espionage-related origins to the involvement of foreign governments to disappearing hitchhikers, not hitchhikers, but disappearing tourists, and then finally these amazing, mysterious petroglyphs, which I really want to know more about. And maybe we'll cover more in a future episode. Uh, until next time, this is Dane signing off. Stay strange and stay sane.